My name is uh, Justin, uh, one of the elders and the lead pastor here at Peninsula Grace. It's good to be with you. Rock come up today. Um, thanks, Laurel, for giving me that. We, uh, if, if you're new with us, we're glad you're here. We, we pray that you feel welcomed uh, together as we're worshiping that king. We have that resurrection power in living inside of us. Amen. And so we're looking at God's word. God's word shows us that power. It teaches us about that power. It forms us. And so we want to, if you have your Bibles, uh, t- take them open, open them, take them open. I don't know what that is. Um, open them up or, or, you know, open the app, however you do that. But the words will be on the screen in the ESV. We're going to be wrapping up today our series on, or our, the book of First Timothy, the Next week, we're going to take a, a one-week break for an Easter uh, celebration, and then the week after, we're going to pick it back up in 2 Timothy. I love 2 Timothy, one of the most uh, intense, applicable, personal books uh, in the New Testament, so excited to do that together. But 1 Timothy today, uh, this message is called, Until He Appears. So when Paul wrote uh, to Timothy this first letter, uh, the Roman Empire was in complete control at the time. The Emperor Nero was the one on the throne, and remember, this is first century AD before any of the technology that we have today. So you didn't see the emperor. Most people in the empire, had maybe they'd seen a statue, but they had never laid eyeballs on the emperor himself. They didn't see him on TV. You didn't have access like today where the, elder, the, uh, the emperor could be doing some morning selfies over you know, Facebook Live or whatever the kids are using today. And, hey, guys, just another day, you know, crushing other empires' wills to live. And here's some new LuLaRoe line that I have for you, right? Didn't have that kind of access to celebrities or, or uh, politicians, leaders in that day. So if the, if in this massive empire, if the emperor was coming to your town, If he ever came to your town, this was the biggest deal possible. This is is the Beatles coming to America. Look at these girls losing their minds. Uh, This meets the coronation of the Queen of England, and then the biggest celebration freak out of all meets a Taylor Swift concert, right? You add all those together, and this is the emperor showing up. And, and Nancy Wright explains it this way. Um, the Caesar, which was the title given to the emperor, um, he was not just the king or the leader of this great empire. He was actually seen as divine. He was given God status. And so if the emperor was to come to your town to visit your people, this was not just a visit from the king. This was very literally to them a divine revelation. And the word that they used for this was the word, the Greek word epiphania, which was where we get our word epiphany, which is an illuminating discovery. So they, they saw the king, right? They, there was this appearing of the king. So we you know illuminating discoveries when Thomas Edison discovered the light bulb. That was an illuminating discovery because it was the light bulb. Okay. Um, yeah, you got it. All right. Verse 14. Uh, until, the, Paul's going to say this today. Until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses this word appearing, he's using that Greek word epiphany. The appearing of not just the king, but God himself. And he knows when he uses this word, the Ephesian audience that's listening to this, this is language that they know is reserved for the king, for the Caesar, for the emperor, and he's being very intentionally subversive here, very controversial when he uses this word for Jesus. He says, he says and, and line after line in this passage, he's going to rub it in. He's going to say, there is one true king, the one whom all Caesars, all presidents, all dictators, all earthly monarchs will bow before the only royal appearing that ultimately counts, and that is the one of King Jesus. In light of that, Paul's going to write to Timothy here 
his disciple, uh, in this Roman Empire. And, he's in, and Paul or Timothy is helping lead a church in Ephesus. You can see there in modern-day uh, Turkey. And his purpose, remember, if you've been with us, he says his purpose very clearly in chapter 3. He says, Timothy, I'm writing to you so that you would know how one ought to live in God's household. You're going to teach the people, the local spiritual family here in Ephesus, how they ought to conduct themselves. But, but we know that this has not been an easy process, Right? The church is a mess. It's a heathen society who's worshiping the emperor. Their pets' heads are falling off, right? This is, things are not going well. And, and Paul wants to remind Timothy at the end of this letter, he wants to remind him of who is truly on the throne, that he it needs to be ready for the epiphany, the returning, the appearing of King Jesus. And in the meantime, until he comes back, he needs to be engaged in the work of the king in his service. And so as Paul closes this letter, he's going to give five charges to Timothy. Five charges about how to persevere when life gets hard. It's written to Timothy, but it's written for us as well today. That we also are called, charged to persevere, stay the course until, as the wisest monkey ever lived, Rafiki says, until the king has returned. Right. So five charges today, First Timothy. We're going to be looking at the back half of First Timothy 6. The first one is to flee. So uh, think about, in your mind, the animal that you are most afraid of. Okay? For me, it's a snake. I believe snakes clearly a part of the fall, right, the tempter. Evil, I hate snakes with the passion of a thousand burning suns. If you were to see that animal that you most fear, what are you going to do? What is your reaction? Or we know in Alaska when you're hiking and you see a bear, what do you do? You run. No, you don't. You get big and you back out. Whoa, bear, right? Whoa, bear. But what you don't do is stay around and play patty cake, right? You get out of there. You remove yourself from a dangerous situation. And he's going to say, he's going to say, you need to flee, Timothy, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Your reaction to these things would be just like when you see that bear on the trail. Whoa, sin. Whoa, sin. Back up. He says, but and now what things is he talking about? What, what things is he supposed to flee from? Well, we look at the context, right? He says, but as for you, O man of God, but, that's that conjunction. So he's, he's comparing what we just saw. If you were here with us last week, Paul lays out at the beginning of chapter 6 this false teacher, this fake follower of Jesus, and he gives a description of this person, one who's arrogant, one who's argumentative, one who's greedy, one who's making it all about themselves, that is in it to take and take and take, putting themselves on the throne. And he says, but that's not you, Timothy. That is not you. And what does he call him here? He says, you, O man of God. And this man of God, this is a title that was frequently used in the Old Testament for the prophets. And Timothy can definitely identify with those, those prophets of old, right? He's pe preaching a very unpopular message to a people, many people who are not receiving, listening to, to that message. And so what we see here is he calls in this man of God at, at the end of this letter as he's going to encourage him to stay the course. And what he starts with is Timothy, and, and, and another Lion King reference here, remember who you are, right? You are my son. In the faith, right? Believe that. And that's, I promise, the last Lion King reference in the morning. Now, when he says man of God, he does not mean, we think of man of God, like a holier than thou art, better than thou art. But no, it's literally, you are a man of God. You belong to God. You're his child. He's your father. He's your king. Not Nero, King Jesus, right? And, and so it's important for us to remember what we do, how we live, stems from who we are. So he wants to remind Timothy at the outset to encourage him to stay the course, remember who you are, Timothy, remember, 
You're not like the greedy people. You're not a taker, right? You're not, you're not one who puts yourself on the throne. So don't be who they are. Be who you are called to be. And he says, you, O man of God, flee from these things. I love the word here. The, the Greek word is, is fuego. So he's saying, run as though your pants are en fuego. I think is the, maybe, maybe a Spanish, I don't know. I'm, I'm all confused here. He says, flee or run from something abhorrent or dangerous. This is how you're to see this thing, as abhorrent. That you react to this thing that is dangerous or abhorrent. Again, as you would react to that bear on the trail. Now listen, he's not saying this fleeing is not a, a motivated by the fear of that thing or, or of those. Greater is he that is in us than is in the world, Amen. So we're not motivated by the fear of that thing. We're motivated by the fear of God. This is wisdom to trust what God is telling us. When he says that greedy lifestyle, that taking all in it for me lifestyle, that is going to kill you. Sin is real and it has consequence. And this is the picture he painted for us last week in chapter nine, or in verse 9 and 10. He says those that desire to be, to be wealthy, those who love money, who elevate it over God as an idol. He says they, they, this is a snare, it's a trap, and it will plunge them into, into destruction and into ruin. That they wander away from the faith and they pierce themselves with many pangs. You hear the language, the tone there. And we've got to ask ourselves this morning... Do we play patty cake with the bear on the trail? Do we take sin lightly? Now, we know the big ones, murder, adultery. We know some of the, but, but I'm talking about any, we're talking about envy, greed, pride, gossiping. Do we understand that left unchecked, that takes us down a trail that will lead to ruin and destruction? That we got to see it the way God sees it. Because it's a burning building. You need to get it as far away from it as you can. Flee. From these things, Timothy, flee from this lifestyle. But in the positive direction, the next command is to pursue. Number two is to pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So uh, years ago, I went to a baseball game in Pittsburgh. And they brought this, uh, before the game, they brought this family out into the field, a mom and her two kids. And up on the jumbotron, they put their dad. Their dad was a soldier in Iraq or, or somewhere overseas. And so here he is on the, it was July 4th, and so they have this, this soldier of these, the husband and the father on the jumbotron, and he's speaking live video to the, the family, and they're tearing up, and they're, they're seeing dad up on the big screen. Well, the big surprise was dad wasn't in Iraq on a, on a, on a screen, and the doors opened out on the field, and dad's right there on the field. And that little girl and that little boy come sprinting at their daddy, you Bolt would have been in there eating their dust, right? Anybody comes close to that little girl, she's going to give them the Heisman, right? You don't come between the little girl and her daddy. Mom's somewhere behind trying to track She's trying to catch up. What do we see here? We see them pursuing their daddy. He's there for them, and their eyes are fixed on one thing. And when he says here, here's a little picture of them. I was up where the pastor can afford seating, and so it was a little fuzzy, but uh, you can see the, the sailor down there with his, with his family there at home plate. When he says pursue, this is what he's talking about. He says to run, it means to run swiftly in order to catch a person like daddy or a thing. To seek eagerly, to earnestly endeavor to acquire. 
Paul says this is how we should pursue, chase after these, these virtues, running with our eyes fixed on them like that little girl to her daddy. Now notice this comes right after the command of flee, right? Do you see that? So it's saying here, fleeing is not an aimless flight. That I'm just running, where are you going? I don't know, just run. And I'm hiding it through the woods and I'm running into trees. I don't know where I'm going, I just gotta get away. This is not so much, this is not just where we're running from, but it's where we're running to, what we're running toward And what we're running toward is a better way, a better direction, a better God, a better Savior, the Father himself. And what does he say that we're running to? Well, he says it in verse 11. He says, pursue righteousness, which is a Bible word. And sometimes we can think of righteousness as like, you know, a a better than thou, a a, a kind of religious snobbery. But literally, literally, the word just means the state of him who is as he ought to be before God. He says you should pursue the right relationship with God. And what does that look like? Godliness. And we've been, he uses this word a lot in this book, and it, it means the right worship of God. He says what you should be pursuing is the worship of God in, in the manner that he is worthy of receiving. And how does, what does that look like? He says you pursue faith, to trust that God, to trust his heart for you, to love that God, to love others that he loves. And that's a steadfastness. If you continue pursuing in that direction toward that God, and it's a gentleness. That word means meekness or it's a humility. Not cocky, not greedy like the man he talked about earlier in the chapter. But one who's humble and knows their place before their father. This, he says, is the heart of a child that says, my father would come for me out onto the field of grace. He came for me, his child, and runs toward him and says, daddy, I trust you. I'll do whatever you say. It's eyes that are fixed firmly on him, sprinting toward him. So how do we do that? Because if you're like me, most days I would say my, my, my eyes are not fixed firmly on the Father, that I'm not consistently pursuing him and the things that are of him. Well, this is the next call he has here for us is to fight, fight the good fight of faith. Now, oftentimes this can be, we hear fight the good fight, we're thinking of military terms and it could be used in that context at times, but most of the time this was an, an athletic uh, context. So the word here is this long word that I won't even try to pronounce, but you can see where we get our word agonize. So we, this is a word that you can translate as agonize. Like my March Madness bracket, when I look at it right now, I, I agonize, right? Oral Roberts, you're killing me, right? Thought you could do it, but that's another sermon for another day. The meaning here is, is to enter a contest, to contend in Olympic games, contend with adversaries, difficulties, or, or danger. So to contend. So what does it take to contend in the Olympic games? Remember, these were originated back in these, these ancient, ancient times. Um, so a couple things that are needed to contend in the Olympic Games. The first one is some natural gifts, right? To be, in the, to be at the Olympic level, that's not just for anybody. Like, let's just be, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, real moment of confession. No matter how hard I work, I will never be Michael Phelps. I know that surprises you, but even with the new hips, right? I'm just not going to be, the butterfly is just not going to be for me. So we have to have some natural gifts to be able to qualify at that level. But then we also have to work. The Olympic contender has to work. Michael Phelps didn't become the most decorated athlete, Olympic athlete of all time uh, by eating Doritos and playing Xbox every, every morning until 3 a.m., right? He put in the work. He was in the pool. He was in the weight room. He was dieting every single day. The, the world's most successful Olympians are also some of the world's, most, some of the world's hardest workers, so what does it look like for us, then, to contend in the games, to fight the good fight of faith? I love how uh, 
Paul unpacks it in Philippians chapter 2. He says it this way. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out, right? I work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's work. There's obedience. There's something we're going to do. But he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see a working out and a working in. And this shows us both sides of this fight of faith. There is a fight of faith. So we have to believe this is a faith. This is what God works in us. There are things that we could never do, just like I could never be the Olympic swimming athlete. You and I, there are things that we could never do if God didn't work into us, if he didn't give us his life, if he didn't give us the spirit of God, if he didn't give us these gifts, we, we could not get into the game. But not only does he work in us things that we believe and receive by faith, but there's also a fight, a fight of faith. He says, work out what God's worked in, that salvation. So we are called to do something, right? Just like Michael Phelps. We're not going to coast into godliness. Nobody's just kind of waking up. I just keep naturally being more forgiving and loving and patient. I don't know. It just happens, right? Like none of us just lose weight naturally, right? Especially as we get older. Can I get a witness? But the reality is, like, there's a work and a fight. And this brings us to what we would call spiritual disciplines, practices of the faith. So like Michael Phelps, he's swimming laps, right? He's lifting weights. He's, he's watching film. He's listening to coaches. He's eating gluten-free kale or whatever he had to do to get into that kind of a shape. Spiritually, we, we, we pray. We read God's word. We, we fast. We serve other people. We confess our sins. We worship with other believers. We, we sing. We do. We, we work. But what's important to remember, because some of us, as soon as we hear that work, we're going, not saved by work, we're saved by grace. No works, you legalist. Chill, okay? A man named Dallas Willard really helped me think about this concept of what does it look like for us to work in light of our, the free grace of God. And he said it this way. He says, um, oh, there's my boy Phelps. He says, it is crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort. Did you hear that? It's not opposed to effort, just doing something. It's not like, that's not, that's not grace, it's works. No, listen, listen. It's not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. In other words, it's an attitude that says, if I do these things, if I read my Bible, if I go to church every week, right? If I do these things, I'll earn God's acceptance. I'll earn his favor. That's, it's, it says, that's not grace. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. We are called to do things. They don't earn God's favor, Right? We are, he says, without effort, we'd be nowhere. We lay on the bed all day. It's not, we're not going to be effective in God's kingdom. So listen to me. Only God can grow us, right? It's what he works in. But when we practice these disciplines by faith, we're going to see God transform the heart that is in motion. God transforms the heart that's in motion. Fight the good fight of faith. Number four, it says take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. So one of my favorite summer activities, intertubing on, on the lake at my uh, sister and brother-in-law's house. And uh, I, I just brought this up because I thought, man, summer just seems to be so close right around the corner, right? <laughs> Can't say it with a straight face. There's eight feet of snow out there, Jesus. What's going on? So learn to hold on uh, to something no matter what, right? That's the lesson in, in, with the, uh, the intertube. So last summer, my niece, Sunny, and I are holding on to the back and we're not going to let go, right? I'm competitive. Ryan's not going to get me off with all his little boat figure eights and flippy flaps, right? I'm going to hold on. I'm holding on. We're holding on so tight. But eventually we hear this rip and the fabric comes ripping off of the inner tube and Sonny and I go flying backward. But you know what? We didn't let go. <laughs> Following Jesus. 
He says here, it literally means to get a grip on. So to grip this thing, to grasp this thing. Now we say, wait a second, what does he say to grasp? Eternal life. So he's saying, is it, all, is it up to me to hold on to that eternal life hard, you know, fast enough, hard enough, or else I'll lose it? I'll lose that eternal life? Is that what the point here is? Not at all. Um, I love when we, we sing the song, uh, Bridget has brought this up. She said it well. We sing the song, I am holding on to you. I am holding on to you. That, that, that phrase, it's, it's actually, it's not us saying, Jesus, I'm holding on to you. I got you. Actually, Jesus singing to us, I am holding on to you. It's the strength of his grip, not the strength of ours. Amen. And what he says here, and he kind of unpacks this, this grip. He says in the rest of verse 13, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God gave this to you. And about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to. And even commentators can be kind of divided on this. But very likely, he's referring to the moment, I mean, this confession. Confession of what? Of Jesus as his Savior. And it's in the presence of many witnesses. This could be his, the moment of baptism where Timothy declared that he was a Jesus follower and wanted everybody to know that he was. So what we see is that in in the Roman Empire, uh, when the emperor would summon people to join his army, um, that he invited them into this uh, to carry the message as his soldiers to the rest of the Roman Empire of the Pax Romana. We talked about this, the Roman peace. But the way that the Romans brought peace was through the sword. You obey, you follow us, you get along with us, or you're going to get the other end of this sword. And when you signed on, you made a very public allegiance to the army, to the emperor, right? That you were a part of this thing. And likewise, when King Jesus enlists us into his army, right? You know the song, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. There you go. We've got some people from the 90s. That's great. These are, we're, we are true messengers of, of true peace. Not the Pax Romana, the Pax Jesus. Not the message of the sword, but of the, of the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of peace. And we also publicly declare, we, we believe in our heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he's called us to make that witness public. And it's through this process of baptism. This is the public declaration that we identify with Jesus, one with Christ, and identify with his body, the people, the followers of, of Jesus. So this is that public declaration. He says, you made in front of witnesses. And this phrase says, take hold of that prize, Timothy. Take hold. This is another allusion to those Olympic games. They would use this phrase, take hold of, when, when they would take hold of. What are, they, what are they striving for, contending for? The prize. And it was this, this, uh, this crown of olive leaves that came from the sacred trees of Olympia. So Olympia, the Olympic games, this is where these trees came from. The, the olive leaves, they put on their little crowns. What, what prize are we called to lay a hold of? He says here, we take hold of the eternal life. That's, that's our prize, not a, the, the eternal crown. And what did we say from last week, if you were here with us, what, how does Jesus defi define eternal life? He said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The prize that we are laying hold of is the one who lay hold of us. See, Eternal life is not just that you don't go to heaven when you die. Because if that was the case, he couldn't take hold of it right now, right? Eternal life is to know God through the person of Jesus. And that prize is available to each of us today. He says, grab, grab onto that and don't let go, Timothy. So let me ask you this morning, have you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses? Have you believed in your heart? If you don't believe in your heart, none of the outward matters. We believe in our heart. We confess with our mouth, and we're baptized. Baptism does not save us. 
Full stop. But baptism declares to the people around us that we have identified with Jesus Christ and his people. And if you have not taken those steps, man, come down and find me right front and center while we're singing or afterward. And we'll talk. We'll find some water. We'll do it right now, right? Make sure grandma's here to watch. Take a picture. But Listen, maybe, maybe you're this morning questioning. Maybe, maybe you made a good confession. Maybe you even got baptized years ago. But you're like, I was five years old. I was still cramming Legos up my nose. What, what did I know? And I want to say this morning, the good confession that we make, I do believe there's a point in time when we cross from death to life, a definitive point in time. And yet, the important moment in our life is not that we know exactly when we made that good confession. The most important moment in our life to know is to look back 2,000 years ago and to be able to answer today, did Jesus die for my sins? Did Jesus raise from the dead? Is Jesus alive today as Lord and Savior and King of all? That's the good confession that we make today. And we confess that to each other on a daily basis. We need to remind each other of that good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. The last command that Paul wants to give us is to keep the commandment unflinchingly. He says to Timothy, you're not the only one who's made a good public confession, Timothy. Jesus before Pilate, if you, you know, I love, this is such a cool and intentional link that he makes here. Uh, if you remember in verse 13, he says, I, give char, give, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, where that life come from? God himself, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made thee, and here's the same phrase he just used for Timothy, the good confession. So if you remember, we have this recorded in, in several of the Gospels, but looking at John's version, um, when we have Pilate, he looks at Jesus and he, and he says to Jesus, he says, you will not speak to me? Jesus isn't answering he says, do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate says, don't you realize I've got the power right now? I, could, I have the power to see you killed or the power to see you stay alive. To which Jesus looks back at him and goes, no, you don't. Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Jesus, God of the universe, looks at Pilate and he says, no, 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 you're not in control. Your kingdom, is, your Caesar is not ultimately on the throne. My father is. And then he makes the good confession, chapter 18, when he's questioned. He says, so, so Pilate says, so you are the king? He gets down to it. You're not going to beat around it. Are you the king or not? Are you declaring to be the king, the Messiah of the Jews? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. You've actually made the declaration yourself. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, I am the king. I was born for this. I was sent by my father who's actually in charge. Get the Caesar off your shoulder, right? Jesus' confession here. Jesus' great confession is verbal. He says it out loud. It's public. It's heard by others. It's a true confession. He's not lying. And it is one that is selfless. It is absolutely selfless of him because in this moment, Jesus could have chosen, right? He made his choice in the garden. when He said, not my will, but yours. He could have chosen to bail here. Are you the king of the Jews? I am not. Pilate would have let him go. The people would have let him go because now he's no longer claiming the blasphemy that they want to kill him for. Right? Jesus could have chosen the selfish way and gone down, dipped his toes in the Mediterranean sand and had a good life for the next 20, 30, 40 years. But for you and I, he chose to confess the truth. See, Jesus will never call us to do something that he didn't already do himself. 
and that by his grace and power, he wants to do in and through us. Paul says, Timothy, keep confessing that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true savior. Jesus is the true Lord. Say it verbally, say it publicly, say it truthfully, and say it selflessly, which is what I think he refers to here in verse 14 when he says, keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. So this word here, it can mean a, an order, a command, or, or a charge. And what's, what charge, what command is he referring to? Well, what has he been calling to him to in, in this chapter, right? That he's been, he's been, Paul's been giving him a charge that is ultimately not from Paul's lips, but from the, his commander-in-chief directly, right? The, the charge that Timothy has been given, not from, not from Caesar, right? From his true king, the ultimate king, to persevere, to keep fighting, to keep the faith. And he says to keep this commandment unstained and free from approach. This, this phrase, this word phrase meant to do it without flinching or wavering. Don't flinch and don't waver, Timothy. It's like the Queen's guards in England when they're not supposed to move no matter what happens, even when uh, Mr. Bean messes with them. Oh, Mr. Bean. He says, like Jesus before Pilate, keep confessing the truth of the gospel without flinching, without wavering, even if it costs you your life, just like it cost our Savior his. See, listen, if we truly confess the gospel, if we live in a way that's consistent with the good news of Jesus, if we speak in a way that is consistent with the good news that Jesus alone is king, Jesus alone is the way to salvation, that we are sinners in need of something outside of ourselves, it's going to get us in trouble. We're going to be seen as intolerant, as judgmental, as exclusive, and we're going to be met with indifference, which is often one, or rejection, or mocking, or, or unbelief. And he says, like Jesus, true, choose to tell the truth even when it costs. And keep confessing for how long? He says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing, and there's our word, the epiphany, the appearing, the coming of the king, the divine revelation of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God, will display at the proper time. And just at the idea of Jesus' return, Paul can't help himself. And he snaps into his favorite role, the hype man for the king. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've been waiting for, verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Can I get a witness from the congregation? Amen. Got three of them. That's great. No, I'm just kidding. Paul reminds Timothy, he says, you are in a seemingly impossible situation. Your church is crazy. You're drowning in pagan town. So Timothy gives him a pep talk. He's the coach looking down at his player. Look at me. Listen to me. He says, fight. Pursue. Persevere. Now listen, what's important here is we don't do this. Timothy doesn't heed this. We don't heed this by looking at ourselves. We don't do it arrogantly by going, okay, I got you, Jesus. I'm going to be your guy. And we, and we grit our teeth and we go, look at these pythons. I'll take on anybody, right? I got the brain. I got the brawn. I got the charm. Okay, we, don't, we don't get cocky on our own. But nor do we look at ourselves insecurely and go, well, I could never do that. I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough person to do it. I can't fight. I can't persevere. Either one, listen, either one of those is a preoccupation with self. Whether it's arrogance or insecurity, we get our eyes off of ourselves. Because otherwise, if we have our eyes on ourselves, it will lead to failure. He began reminding Timothy 
of who he was, the man of God. But we can only truly see who we are in light of who God is. You are a man of God. You belong to God. And so he shows him this beautiful display of who our God is. He says, persevering, fighting, pursuing, that's only going to happen when we see and savor, savor who our God really is. What we most need in our lives is the right vision of who our God is. Because the best way to fight the good fight of faith is to worship The best way to fight, the good fight of faith, is to worship the king. In this spontaneous hymn here, Paul, man, Paul is once again taking shots at the emperor and the empire's false gods, and it's so brilliant. So he, first of all, he says, the God who alone uh, has immortality. So they believe that the goddess Artemis in the temple there in Ephesians, we've talked about her, that she was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of life, who decided who coming into this world would live and who would die. And he goes, no, 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 that's not up to Artemis. The, the only one who can give everlasting life, immortality, the only one who possesses it in and of himself is God Almighty. And then he says he is the king of kings, that he is the big K king over all the little K kings. This was a common expression that they would use for their emperors. King of kings and lord of lords, he says there's only one And then he worshipfully confesses, there is only one who is the Lord of all other lords, Caesar or whoever else it might be, that God alone is sovereign over your situation right here in Ephesus, Timothy. Now maybe like Timothy this morning, you're facing an impossible situation. From the human standpoint, we're we're being asked to walk on the water. Are you going, you kidding me? And the question we have to ask ourselves, that Timothy had to ask himself is, who is bigger in this situation, my God or my circumstances? Now, we all know the answer on paper, but what do we actually believe? How do we live this out? And maybe you're going, yeah, you you don't know my heart, Justin. I don't flee from sin. I don't pursue what's right, not consistently. I don't fight the good fight of faith. Spiritually, I'm I'm a wimp. And I certainly don't consistently worship God rightly, trust God rightly, obey God rightly. And you're exactly right. Me neither. That's where we always land on the gospel. And what's so brilliant, what, what Paul is somewhat literally, what Paul is doing here, look at what he says, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the epiphany, the revealing of Jesus. And it's in this revealing of Jesus that we see God. See, none of us could come to him. None of us could access the inaccessible, approach the unapproachable. And it had to be God coming to us. And he did so in Jesus. The epiphany is that Jesus is the appearing of God. We sing it that the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, Jesus became the visible expression of the invisible God as a baby in Bethlehem. And he's going to come back again. He's going to show himself again a second time, an encore performance when the king comes to be consummated as the king of the entire universe, heaven and earth. And through Jesus, you and I are given access to the inaccessible. We are allowed to approach the unapproachable God. That it's through, through Jesus himself that the, the mortal are given immortality that it's through Jesus the, those who are blind can see, that the one who is invisible can be seen. That you want to see God? We look at Jesus. Do you want to know the Father? We've got to know the Son. You want to walk with God? We've got to follow the person of Jesus Christ. So listen, he, he calls us here to make a good confession. 
But our good confession is only good if Jesus is, is that, that we see in this great hymn that our good confession stands on his great confession. That, that Jesus, not only did Jesus stand before Pilate 2,000 years ago and seal his own death sentence by faithfully declaring to be the God King, but today, right now, your Savior, my Savior, stands before the Father in between us and the accuser. And when Satan whispers the lies that you're too sinful, when he tempts you to despair and tells you of that guilt within, we look up and we see the one who is interceding for us right now, making the great confession, not that we haven't sinned, but that he has saved us from that sin. And he makes the great confession to the father, that one's mine. He's a child of the king. I've paid the price. I've died for him, and I've given him my resurrection life, which we'll celebrate uncorked next week. So you and I, like Timothy, man, we can only keep, he makes these five charges. And just like Timothy, you and I can only keep these five charges in light of the last four words of this letter. He says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Not just a traditional leave-taking. It is the life that we have, the air to breathe. God gave us what we could never earn ourselves. We're in the grip of his grace, not based on the strength of our grip, but on the strength of his. See, and so every day we confess freely that I, Jesus fled from what I would never flee from. Jesus pursued me when on my own, I would not pursue him. I lost the fight. Jesus won the war that I cannot, but he can and did. That, but for the grace of God, there go I too. And now we say, as believers, the life that I live, Paul says in Galatians 2, is through faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I, but it's Christ. And he ends this letter by saying in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Remember, he's been calling out those false teachers all the way through. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you says, you've been entrusted with much, the truth of the gospel, eternal life. Don't swerve from it. Don't flinch in your pursuit of your daddy. We only have so much time before he comes back. The great epiphany, the second appearing of Jesus. We got work to do in the meantime. We work out what God's worked in. So by his grace, would you fight with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he fought the good fight that we didn't. He gave his life up, told the truth, made the great confession, even when it cost him his own life, because the joy he knew would be his afterward. And Father, now you've, you've won, you've bought by that blood a people who are invited out of the domain of darkness, that we have that resurrection power living on the inside, Jesus. And by his grace, what you've worked in can now also be worked out. Lord, we be a people that reject those lies and listen to the truth and then confess that truth. There's someone here that hasn't confessed that truth and hasn't believed it in their heart. They would choose today. They come find me or somebody right here during the singing, maybe before the service ends. Yeah, we need to do some heart work. And Father, that we would be a people that, that from what you've worked in us, that we would work it out, that we'd work, that we'd be a people who pray, we'd be a people who know your word, that we'd be a people who freely confess our sin to each other because we know there's forgiveness and freedom from it. That we be people who worship you rightly in the name of Jesus. We come whole, humbly and boldly into your throne room today. And the best way we can fight now, Lord, the best way we can fight with some of us who are in impossible situations, some of us who can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, 
best way we can fight the good fight of faith today is what we're about to do next. We sing to you. We declare, and maybe there's some people today they're going to sing some words that their hearts don't totally line up with yet. Lord, that we would say these words by faith, trusting that by your grace, our hearts will catch up. We want to declare who you are and then truly believe and live out who you are. Would grace be with us? It's in the name of grace, the epiphany, the appearing, the one who came and appeared, made God visible to us. His name is Jesus, and it's in that name that we pray. Amen.